I'll start. Welcome back to this episode of the Customer Discover Cast. I am here with Aaron Morris, who is the founder and CEO of Postera, machine learning, powering drug discovery. Welcome, Aaron. How are we doing? Thanks so much, Ethan. Real, real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Man, for those that don't know you, please introduce yourself, introduce your business, talk about your background, which is super, super interesting. Yeah, of course. So I'm the uh, CEO and co-founder of a company called Postura. As Ethan mentioned, the challenge that we are trying to address is how do you use modern technology like artificial intelligence and machine learning to improve the way that we discover new drugs? So specifically, Postura focuses on applying machine learning to medicinal chemistry, which is basically like the middle part of how you discover a drug. Mm -hmm. And we can definitely dive in to that more. Um, as for my background, so I'm a mathematician by training. I've loved maths as long as I can remember. And I uh, was actually very fortunate when I was studying in the UK at Oxford to meet one of my co-founders. Uh, didn't know it at the time, but seven years later, we would become co-founders. His name is Alpha. And um, after Oxford, I then went into uh, uh, investment banking and finance actually for five years while I was applying machine learning to challenges in finance and then started Postera back in October of 2019. Wow. Okay. So that, that's a very robust background. Okay. So you're a mathematics major. How did you go? What were you doing back then? What was your day job before you started Postera? Yeah, so I was working at Goldman where I was basically applying machine learning to the stock market. Uh, a specific area that I was interested in is how do we use uh, big data to help us price what are known as block transactions, which is huge amounts of stock being sold at any given one time. So most people think of machine learning or quant in finance as doing thousands of trades a second, which are all quite small. Whereas I was doing one trade every couple of months that was really, really, really huge. So it was very much focused on the other side of the traditional low latency, high speed algorithmic trading that most people associate quantitative finance with. Wow. How'd you like that, by the way? Because I, I just spoke with someone who was in something similar. He was on the high frequency side. He loved it. He loves numbers. I mean, he's now a machine learning engineer as well, but you know, he, he speaks with people and he's like, man, the toughest part is like, if I were to talk about what I do with someone who, you know, isn't like passionate about finance or numbers, their eyes just glaze over. <laughs> and like, how do you feel about that? Was that the case when he spoke to people about it, about what you do? Well, you know, actually, I think it's so important for anyone who is in a very technical or scientific domain to get really good at being able to take very complicated language and jargon and concepts and make them accessible. So actually, the people that I was working with at Goldman had absolutely zero finance background. My manager could barely discern the difference between an average and a median of a set of numbers. And so I actually enjoyed learning how to communicate super complex concepts like machine learning to people very much outside of that domain. And it's, it's something I continue to try and do today. And so my encouragement, yeah, for anyone is don't get stuck in your bubble, 
learn how to communicate your science to people outside. Are analogies your best friend? Metaphors and similes? Like how, how do you best communicate complex <laughs> things such as that? Yeah, I reckon that um, absolutely analogies, metaphors are the best way, though imperfect, to try and make it accessible. And everyone loves a diagram. Everyone, we're very visual learners as humans. Like we we, we can make sense of, of images much better often than just pure text. So combining a few of those visual features uh, with analogies, I I guess goes some way to getting the problem conveyed and, and trying to do things in layers. So starting out with something that may not be entirely perfectly accurate, but at least is digestible and understandable and then building complexity on top of it. Rather than starting out with a set of equations, start out with a very simple in imperfect analogy and build up to something more accurate, but harder to understand. Absolutely. Wow. So, okay. We, we, we covered your background and it's a very, you know, it, it's very hard to do what you were doing, both like getting into the position that you were at and then being there. So it must have taken something rather, you know, purposeful, rather passionate uh, for you to say, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to go, you know, start post-era. I don't know if it was called post-era back then, but talk about that. Like what caused you to, to kind of switch, uh, switch paths? Yeah, I was actually very happy in, in my job. I uh, had some fantastic colleagues at, at Goldman, a great social network. I was doing really cool machine learning stuff every day. But I think I got to a point, Ethan, where I was a little bit comfortable. I had become a little bit, um, I guess, predictable in my day-to-day. -day. And I, I was looking for a way to almost disrupt myself you know people talk about disrupting industries but I think it's important you first learn how to disrupt yourself and how to get out of your comfort zone and so for a long time I had continued to communicate with with Alpha you know my friend at Oxford and talk about his work so he was at he went to Harvard and then to Cambridge where he was leading a research group applying machine learning to drug discovery and these academic breakthroughs really got my attention and I said, hey, you know, maybe we can work together uh, along with our other co-founder to begin to commercialize this technology, take it from an academic paper to something that actually is putting drugs, hopefully, into, um, into, into the clinic. So that was quite motivating for me. I think also there was a very clear social impact and social good that I felt I could contribute toward. And um, finally, I think I in the spirit of disrupting oneself, also wanted to learn a new skill set. I think doing the very heavy mathematics, coding, machine learning for lots of years was fantastic, but I wanted the challenge of how do you run a company? How do you build a culture, manage a team, lay out a vision, execute a strategy? How do you do all these things that you don't learn in your textbook? And uh, that was, again, part of the reason that I chose to kind of take the dive in the deep end. Yeah. Wow. So now speak about kind of the early days of post-era, right? How did you guys kind of hash out, hey, there's a problem here. We have a solution to it. Here's how we're going to formulate everything. Forming a company is, you know, like Elon Musk says, uh, that's probably my favorite analogy. Speaking of analogies that he says, starting a company is like eating glass and staring into the abyss. So how was it like eating glass those first few months? <laughs> 
it's it's great if you've got an academic paper, but figuring out where does the market need my solution and how are you going to monetize that is a real challenge. So I think the thing that we did well was rather than sitting in a room and theorizing, we actually just started going out to investors and just trying to pitch, just trying to get feedback from the market as to, do you like this idea? Have you seen other companies in this space? Are we any different to those companies? Mm. And that there's no better feedback than when people have to put their where their mouth is. So actually pitching to investors can be a really helpful way to figure out if you've got anything. Now, are investors perfect? No. Do they make mistakes? Yes. But I think we thought it to be better than just sitting around by ourselves. So we did a lot of pitching, Ethan, for the first three months, a lot of failed, unsuccessful pitches and a few successful ones. And so by the end of, so we started October, 2019, by the end of the year, we'd kind of got maybe like half of the round. We wanted to raise like uh, one and a half million pounds. So $2 million, Mm -hmm. kind of got halfway there, three months, real slog. And that's kind of when Y Combinator came in and broke apart our nice little plan. (laughs) Um, And and that took us off in a different road. Wow. So, you know, two things. First thing is that you really did your customer discovery interviews, essentially like, is there a market for this? Are we, you know, are we a, a unique approach to it that would be beneficial to the market? And and you really did your customer discovery interviews with investors, which is the first time I've heard that. But for a unique business in a unique niche like yours, uh, biotech, correct? That's ultimately what you guys would be classified under biotech companies. It's, it's a lot different because it's not B2C, right? You don't you don't necessarily go speak to consumers. You have to speak to domain experts because it's such a, a very you know refined uh, area. So very interesting there. And it seems like it was rather successful. Like you said, it was a slog, but asking for people for hundreds of thousands of dollars, well, millions of dollars technically, is, is never a quick process, I'm sure. <laughs> Definitely not, no. And you're absolutely right. Of course, the customer always comes first and you should always ask your customer. But you're in the biotech space. I mean, you can't just walk up to Pfizer and say, hey, can you give us some feedback on our idea? So, you know, I, I, investors were the kind of, uh, you know, helpful compromise of accessibility versus, you know, truthfulness. And so you're absolutely right. I think, you know, any new founders, as well as theorizing and thinking, you just want to get out there, speak to your customer, ideally. And if you can't speak to your customer, speak to the domain experts. Yeah. Absolutely. And step two, you said YC kind of interrupted your process. They reached out to you, didn't they? <laughs> uh, they did, yes. Uh, we we had heard of YC. Like, I don't think either of the three of us were particularly in the startup ecosystem. So all of the fantasies around YC and Demo Day, none of that had really reached us. We'd heard of YC. We knew it was kind of, you know, the hot place to go. But really, we never envisaged uh, going there. We never intended to apply. We were very happy saying, okay, we know London. We have our network in London. Let's build from here. But um, huge credit to YC. They really expanded outside of that traditional B2C and SaaS-based products and uh, become very open-minded about welcoming biotech and life science into 
the YC community. And so one of the partners that they had installed reached out to us. They, he had read one of the papers published by our co-founders, Matt and Alpha, uh, from Cambridge and said, hey, have you thought about turning this into a company? It looks promising. And we were like, oh, yeah, two months ago, we actually incorporated a company. It's called Posterior. And um, <laughs> so long story timing. short, yeah. We, th- yeah, we then ended up at YC in the, uh, in the start of 2020 yes january 6th mm. 2020 london and silicon valley we we took like a pre-seed round from london but uh we shut down most of the round after we got in yc so speak about that now so you fly out to mountain view right you had been to america before uh, yeah i actually had a, I have family members living in um in florida and um i've been around certain states but um okay not well not well traveled I was going to say, because my question is, I know that the startup e- ecosphere is, is global, of course, but I've just heard from many people that are global entrepreneurs that just in Silicon Valley, it's just like a fantasy land of, of venture capital and, and startups. Like, what was your experience going from the London, uh, just raising, right? Like in the midst of everything, uh, raising with investors to going to YC and like, I, I don't want to say people throwing money at you, but what was the difference? Like, what did it feel like a, a entirely different world? Well, I think the first thing was before anyone threw money at, money at us, there was a lot of work to be done in the first place. And the YC program rigorously enforces a couple of very helpful philosophies. And that guided the way that we began doing business. So we landed in Mountain View. We maybe had one or two meetings a week with our YC partners, but the majority of the time was the three co-founders. We just lived in an Airbnb close by. I mean, literally slept next to each other, ate together, 18 hours a day, just like worked. I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was intense. Yeah. You know, the fact that we didn't, we didn't kill each other is amazing, but um, those are your friends. We, those were your friends before. Now they're, <laughs> they're like brothers, I bet. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you get you get to know people very well when you're living, <laughs> working, sleeping, like all in the same vicinity. Wow. So, yeah, you know, we work super hard to try and make progress because, you know, it's one thing releasing an app and trying to get users to demonstrate traction to investors. It's another thing in the same time frame to try and convince a pharma company to even have a conversation with you to try and demonstrate some level of traction. Like you're not going to make a drug in three months. So the traction looks very different from the life scientist and biotech perspective, but we had some goals, we had some milestones and we worked toward them. And then demo day came along, which was the kind of culmination where you pitch your company to uh, uh, thousands of investors. I think YC have this amazing network and it was all going great. And then COVID turned up, which meant that uh, two days before demo day uh, lockdowns, occurred and demo day in person was canceled and there was a lot of panic there was a lot of uncertainty around that time and uh, again the YC leaders did an amazing job they spun up a virtual online demo day where we were given basically just a powerpoint slide one powerpoint slide that's all you had and you just posted it on the website and investors looked at it and if they liked it they reached out to you and, and that was our demo day wow yeah. And how, okay. So the first virtual demo day and, mm-hmm. you know, a little birdie has told me that forever now demo day will be virtual. So how was it like for the 
the very first de- virtual demo day? Like, was it tough or you said they did a great job? How'd it go? It, it went really, really well, Ethan. Yeah. But I think we were quite nervous. I mean, I, I love an audience. I love speaking to people. I've been able to read the expression, the response. And ah, so yeah. with that gone, you're really just relying on this PowerPoint slide. And so we had no idea. Remember, the markets are crashing like 20% a day at the minute. We had no idea if there was even sufficient liquidity in Silicon Valley to show any interest in new startups. So we had no idea if anyone would show at all. So we were thinking, do we need to shift back to London? Do we need to put the company on pause? Long story short, COVID became probably the best thing that could have happened to Posterra. We were able to raise well over $2 million in about five days. And so it turned out to be fantastic for us. We had about 45, I think 43 or 45 Zoom pitches in the space of five days. It was like nine or 10 per day, back to back. How much coffee did you drink? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Beard. those days left a permanent scar but it was um it it got wrapped up very quickly so yeah we were very fortunate we you know managed to close the round within a week but uh yeah COVID was a real tailwind for us because of what we were doing wow well congratulations because you guys navigated an unforeseeable storm that no one has ever seen before and and no one knew how to navigate right because like we didn't know how long it would last either i remember back then there's people saying like oh it'll last like two or three months and then you know we're good to go everything's back to normal nope not quite it's it's a year past and it's still going on you know so um congratulations on weathering the storm very gracefully right because you guys have have really uh, i don't want to say capitalized because that almost sounds you know like it, it doesn't quite grace what you guys were actually able to do you know yeah, I think just for anyone who is listening, we actually launched what a COVID initiative, which has become called COVID Moonshot. Exactly. And our idea was that we could crowdsource drug ideas from scientists around the world. So we basically went on Twitter and found some experimental data that had been released from Oxford in the UK. We then put it up on a website and basically said, hey, does anyone want to take this data and work with us? to turn it into a drug. I mean, like our company was six months old. We barely had a website. And so I think we expected 50, maybe a hundred submissions from scientists uh, who got hold of our website. But we ended up with well over 16,000. And uh, that really kind of like was the start of this COVID moonshot initiative, which has gone from that preliminary website with some experimental data from Twitter to actual drugs that are now being tested in animals and preparing for human trials. So, you know, this will be the first time that a drug has kind of been crowdsourced from scratch. And and, and like the end of why Combinator was the genesis of this COVID moonshot. And I think that certainly helped when it came to investors. Wow. So that's very exciting, right? Because you're really like that epitomizes kind of the the stage of humanity we're in, where you can crowdfund something like that because distribution is so high, right? So what is the status of that? I know you said like that was a couple of months ago, but um, they're in human trials. When does it move into, or sorry, they're, we're in animal trials. When do they move into human trials? So uh, 
the process of going from animal trials to human trials can be up to a year. Um, and so we are kind of pretty confident that we are going to be able to like declare what's called a candidate. So you be, hey, I've got this you can't necessarily call it a drug, but just for the sake of simplicity, I've got this drug and it ticks all the right boxes to go into human trials. So we're hoping to get that by the end of the year. There's still quite a bit of process we've got to go through in terms of regulatory filings. It's uh, not a one week job to put a drug into a human, thankfully, right. but it also means it's quite <laughs> slow. So yeah, yeah, it's just been a remarkable effort. And the really good news is that all of the experimental data that's been generated over the last few years is available publicly disclosed on our website, which means when the next pandemic, sadly, inevitably will come around, the world should be on a much stronger foot to be able to respond to the pandemic because of this huge wealth of experimental data that's been generated. The coronavirus, you know, that is the parent um, of SARS-CoV-2 uh, actually is pretty kind of similar when SARS-CoV-1 came out, SARS-CoV-2 is different, but it's not that much different. And so hopefully if we can find a, um, a cure for SARS-CoV-2, there should be a good chance that it's applicable to any future strains of coronavirus as well. So, you know, this is not just about, can we help fix this pandemic? It's, can we put the world in a good place to solve the next pandemic? Wow. So you're really setting up the infrastructure for preventative measures for future pandemics. That's incredible. I So because I'm not too familiar with this technology and, and these processes, it, I know I may sound stupid when I ask this question, does this replace kind of that Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson vaccine? Is this a new approach to solving uh, COVID? Like, can you explain that? Sure. So this is very complementary. So Johnson Johnson, um, AZ, uh, AstraZeneca, sorry, and Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna have all developed vaccines. Now, a vaccine okay. is really, really important if uh, you want to prevent uh, someone from getting infected. Okay. It basically provides a mechanism by which the body can anticipate a response to a real threat. However, if you are already sick, if you have already got co contracted COVID, a vaccine is unlikely to be of any use to you. The, the, the infection, the, the disease is already, the virus is already in your system. What you need at that point is something that can actually kill the virus. And that is an antiviral. So an antiviral basically fixes things. If you're already sick, a vaccine stops you getting sick in the first place. And you really need both to, to really combat this pandemic. And one of the reasons is because the vaccine, as amazing as it is, the scientific breakthrough, it is still going to be well past 2023, even into 2024, until developing nations can get access to mm. these vaccines. And so how are you going to help these nations in the meantime? Well, a cheap oral pill that you can take is a really, really good way to kind of mitigate the problems of COVID until you can get the vaccine. And that's our hope. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, it's incredible. Cause you know, I, normally we never think about things like that, but you guys are really uh, ahead of the curve there. And did you mention the timeline? I know you said, you know, it's definitely, <laughs> it takes a couple months to happen. It, did you say 2022? Um, we have no idea when it will actually be on the shelf. We're just moving as fast as we can. You know, right now, I think the only thing I'd feel comfortable saying is we're aiming for 
you know, ready for human trials by the end of this year. And it's awesome. then just down to regulators as to how fast we can go through that process. Okay. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. So now we're, we're really talking about present day and talking about kind of the next steps for Postera. Um, I, is there anything that people need to know so that they can stay in touch with Postera and, and do you guys take feedback? I, I don't know. How can like scientists get in touch with you guys? Yeah, we basically outside of COVID Moonshot, which is a total uh, nonprofit uh, initiative, consortium, whatever you want to call it, outside of COVID Moonshot, we do have obviously um, a set of uh, collaborations. So if, if you are a drug hunter, if you are developing a drug, um, Posterior can help you. We do that in the form of partnerships where we work with you to basically take your very, very early development process and hopefully with machine learning expedite that very quickly uh, we also do have a SaaS product which fixes a very um, important but smaller slice of drug discovery which is how do I make molecules so this is a process known as chemical synthesis and we've basically taken a portion of our machine learning and made that available. There's so many new biotechs springing up around the world now. And being able to put machine learning into their hands is also really important for us. So you can engage with Posterior both via a partnership, let's develop a drug together, or you can access some of uh, our software, which is sat on our website and it's called Manifold. Manifold. Okay. Gotcha. So that's all on your website. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. Can you, so machine learning and, and drug science and, and drug discovery, speak a little bit more on that. I know we have to wrap up here, but kind of the, you know, the final tidbit here, how do you guys use machine learning to help with drug discovery? Yeah. So I guess you can think about drug discovery as starting off with a biology problem, which is what do I want to tackle in the human body, what protein or enzyme or what right. gene am I aiming for to modulate or to um, upregulate? Once you fixed the aim of biology, it then becomes a chemistry problem of how do I develop a drug that can generate the type of biological response that I want? And after the chemistry, the medical problem of what patients do I need to recruit? What type of dosage do I administer, et cetera? Posterior focuses squarely on the chemistry part, the middle part. Okay. And that middle part is basically a kind of three-step process of designing molecules, making molecules, and then testing them. And then feedback, design, make, and test. And a human intuition, trial and error approach. We bring machine learning to the table to move toward industrializing or making process. It's very challenging. There are many things that humans still outperform algorithms on, but there are many things that algorithms are increasingly being outperform humans on. We that technology to help you figure out what molecules should you make, how exactly should you make them, and what are the likely properties of those molecules that you're making. And we can help have questions. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. And, you know, I, I want to give you the chance. We do have to wrap up. It's been an absolute honor to have you on the show. Aaron, tell people, I, I know you've covered kind of how they could partner with you on the website. Can they stay in touch with you on Twitter? Uh, do you have a business email? How, how can they get in touch with you or stay in, in? You don't have to give out like personal emails or anything, by the way, but. <laughs> no, is I mean, if you um, if you go on our website, there's just a very simple, you know, um, hello at posterior.ai. 
you can follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, we actually put a lot of updates about Postio on those social media platforms. Um, I think that's probably the best way. Awesome. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you, Ethan. Appreciate it. Absolutely.